I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our guest today is Tom Nicotera from Bloomfield, Connecticut. He's been a factory worker, street performer, mime, water sewer repairman, editor, teacher, and of course, he's a poet. When he lived in Washington, D.C., he co-produced the Jazz Poetry Day at the Washington Monument. And his new book of poetry, What Better Place to Be Than Here, was recently published by Foothills Publishing. He also, in addition to reading solo, is a member of the performance poetry trio, not just any Tom, Vic, and Terry. Then I'll be doing a brief review of a collection called Psyche, the Feminine Poetic Consciousness. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Tom Nicotera from Bloomfield, Connecticut. He's a bit of a romantic poet who writes about nature, human nature, relationships, and sometimes accompanies his poetry with a Bowron or blues harp. He's also a longtime friend of mine. Welcome to Poetry Spoken Here, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm so glad you could make it over here to Bennington, Vermont for a live recording. Didn't have to do this one uh, via the computer. So uh, what have you been uh, doing lately with uh, poetry? Uh, I know you go on a lot of hikes. Have you been still writing many nature poems? I still write a lot of nature poems whenever I go hiking. And uh, I usually like to write things that are based on my own personal experiences um, and catch the poetry and the things that I experience the environments and the people I meet and the ideas I get from it. Yeah, and you, um, somebody who just met you or saw you at a reading might think that you're just a, a casual guy who just somehow learned to write poetry because you're a real informal person. But I know you actually even maybe have a graduate degree in poetry and, and taught poetry at some point, didn't you, a long time ago? I did, actually. Um, I have a master's degree in literature, and I've done lots of workshops all over the place, and I'm still doing them. I'm still giving workshops yeah. whenever somebody asks me to. Do you think you learn much about poetry, like years into it, like you learn new things about it when you're trying to write better poems? Uh, I think one of the best ways to learn about poetry is to read as many other poets as you can, uh, which I try to do in all different styles. And um, I think the practice of learning to look at the world in a, with a poetic sensibility is really key to writing poetry all the time. So that you're always ready just to write it down if you're moved by something. Okay, I've got to ask, so what is a poetic sensibility? Is it that readiness, or what do you mean by that? Um, poetic sensibility is a way of looking at the world so that it's not being aware of everything on the surface, but also being aware of things under the surface, such as patterns, uh, motives, um, the other day I was watching a dragonfly crissing back and forth in front of my breezeway. I watched it, wondering why it was doing this. Then I noticed there was a cloud of gnats, and that every time it passed through this cloud of gnats, it reached up and grabbed one, and it kept doing this over and over again. 
So it wasn't just the dragonfly flying. It was the reason why it was flying. And there was a certain intelligence there that gave you an idea for a poem. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example, too. Let's hear a poem. Okay. Um, actually, this poem I, I'm going to read <laughs> is came out of an experience of driving to Chicago to meet my friend Charlie Rossiter. And uh, I drove out there on the interstate, um, alternate I-80, which I found terrifically boring. So I got off of it and started taking back roads with maps. I don't have a GPS. I love maps. And I went back the same way, picking a totally different route. And I wrote this poem, which is kind of another version of Robert Frost's um, The Road Not Taken. It's called Alternate I-80. There's the alternate I-80, and I take that road, getting off the interstate of toll plazas and rest stops where you pay your way and every meal's fast food, McDonald's, D'Angelo's, Wendy's, Arby's, as if to prove that Americans have at last forsaken the power of choice for a life of speed. But here in alternate 80 are crossroads roads where souls meet, great psychic meanderings happen when turns are missed, as some small town, your mind ranges over quirky storefronts and oddball characters. You sit in dark bars and strike up otherworldly conversations with bearded, wild-haired men or sirens of the night whose eyes haunt you long after you've left. You never know which corner a Buddha sits back against brick, at which lunchtop counter a shaman eats a ham and cheese, under which starry night an artist awakens from dreams to see angels and demons waging a raucous celestial war. Here, the journey is the journey, and on one of these desert roads in one of these barren towns, a great long-lost love waits with eyes hungry for you, and a mind that glitters like those starways above you, and a body that will open to you and you alone to kindle ancient fires in your heart and quench the longing that has driven your soul for far too long. So next time the alternate route appears, take that, take your chances, hopscotch across the unpredictable paths and turns and crossroads of the terrain of souls. It's there waiting for you. There's the exit. Take it now. <laughs> okay, you've got a dynamic mode of presentation, I've got to say. Oh, thank you. I forgot that, but I usually don't hear you in a small room like this. <laughs> you know what? What do you think about that? Uh, this is called Poetry Spoken here. I often like to ask people what you think about the relationship of the poem on the page and the poem as presented by the poet. I think the poem on the page is really a shell of how you're going to present the poem because all the emotions and ideas and experiences that you invest into a poem are really not in the words on the page. Some of it is. But when you, and I like to memorize some of my poems, but when you voice it, you're adding the weight of your own personal experience to the words on the page. So it's, it's kind of like giving it life. That's the way I look at it. Because somebody reading on the page could give a totally different life to it. Yeah. But when you read your own poems and you try to relive the experience that you have when you wrote it, you're adding whole other dimension to the presentation of the poem. It's not on the written page. And the goal, the goal is to have the 
the audience come close to what you experienced? Or? That's right. And, and for me to um, give them back when I presented the energy that I have when I experienced the writing of the poem and the experience that went into the poem. And the other thing is, I, I believe in the old bardic tradition of the poet singing around the campfire um, about things that inspired him. And so I'm also trying to revive the vocal bardic tradition. All right. That's good. Wow. You thought about that a lot? Yes. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but let me see. Bardic tradition. The relationship, oh yes, we all know Bob Dylan recently got an award that usually goes to novelists. All right, he deserved that. <laughs> and what, what, about the, what about the relationship of, of, of poetry and, and music slash song because you work with instruments and you're going to pretty soon? I, I think um, there's really a, a really close relationship because even without a musical instrument, there's a rhythm in poetry that mimics the rhythm of our own speech. Um, so there's a natural music to poetry and in the sounds of words, the way we put the words together. But then if you can add an instrument to augment the emotions in the poem, I think that helps a lot in the delivery of the poem. Okay. But not for all poems. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. Yeah. Nothing works all the time with everything. No. The last poem I, I read, The Alternate 80, I, I can't imagine having music with that. It just Meet wouldn't ups. really add to it. It would right. just be maybe distracting even. It might even distract from it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, well, let's, uh, why don't you do something where the music doesn't distract from it? Uh, does this mean we're calling for your pull out the blues harp or, uh, or well, the drum? I'll pull out the blues harp. Okay. Since we're talking about it adding emotion, I, I always feel like the harp is... Well, I feel like it's more emotional than the, than the drum, though the drum can add a lot to the song. And this is going to be... This will be uh, Blues for America. And um, I wrote this. Uh, my daughter is going to college in, in Baltimore, and um, I went to visit her, and I stayed in a suburb, Lincoln Heights, Maryland, at a Motel 6. And everything that happened in this poem actually happened um, <laughs> to me, which... Again, I write from experience, uh, so I, I didn't add anything for my imagination to augment the poem. Everything in here is real, and it was a very surreal experience that I wrote about. So it's called Blues for America. Blues for America, Linthicum Heights, Maryland. Arriving at this Motel 6, at 11.30 p.m., everything is closed. The night clerk's breath never mingles with the same air I breathe. A glass wall separates the handling of money, the questions about checkout time and ice machines, the signing of the guest card. For food, there is only Taco Bell, Wendy's, McDonald's, KFC. All are closed. Where do I turn? A man in the stairway looks oddly at me as I look for exits. Cars howl on the interstate. Beyond the fast food places are closed businesses, building contractors, piano warehouses. This is no place for the living. Yet there are men about, getting gas, buying chips. Where do I turn for food? 
I go to the Exxon Food Mart. Open 24 hours, the sign says. A clerk's inside. A long-haired young woman from India. I try the door. It's locked. She's at a cashier's window, facing outside. I am befuddled. Inside are rows of chips, candy, cookies, soda, coffee. A black man in a long brown coat says, You gotta show your money at the window. What, I say? I don't want to buy gas. There's no longer any trust in America, he says. What? I don't understand. Give her your money first, he says. There's no longer any trust in America. Give my money first? I still don't understand. She shouts through the window. Tell me what you want and I'll bring it to you. I shout back. I don't know what I want till I look. The man keeps saying, there's no longer any trust in America. The cars in I-695 whine and howl. The fast food neon lights flicker. Back at the Motel 6, men with drinks at midnight stare down at the drain pool. place for human beings <laughs> yeah. I love the I love the drained pool uh, it just is so as Kerouac would say lugubrious yeah. this this place with a drained pool and yeah. everything is it all goes together you piled <sighs> the details pile on and they all go in the same direction which is great yeah I, I'm glad you said that it, it was so odd to me that here's this beautiful pool that nobody could use so all they could do was stand there at midnight looking at it while drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Which is even sadder, really. <laughs> Just ignoring it. You know? yeah. Whoa, that's good. So did you have the idea to use the harp uh, from the beginning with that poem? or did No, you I the... didn't actually. I, I wrote the poem, and um, I think I actually had a different title for it, um, you know, at the Motel 6 mm -hmm. in Maryland, something like that. And then I decided, um, after I wrote it, thinking about it, my, I've been playing the harmonics since I was 19, a long time, that it might be good to do blues riffs with it. Yeah. And so I tried it out at an open mic and got good feedback. So that's what I decided on. All right. Yeah. Uh, you were going to say, before I ask you that, you were going to say something. I don't know what. Oh, uh, I was going to say that um, that Motel 6 was so bad, I'll never go there again, that I had to actually ask at the front desk for soap. That's pretty extreme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been in some pretty bad motels. And, but I think there was always soap. Well, there was sometimes like an empty light bulb socket, which strikes me as extremely weird. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the life of poets who who live the low cash flow existence and get by. It was cheap. Travel. It was a cheap motel. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. Well, all right. Okay, well, now you want to do another with an instrument? or? Uh, yeah, well, right. um, you mentioned that I'm a romantic, and I, I do write a lot of, lot of love poems. Um, and this one I wrote and decided to put it to a drum, a, a bran, an Irish drum. And it's called When I Think of You.
I think of you, I think of the moon. And when I kiss your skin, I kiss the moonlight. And all, all about me is silver, even the hair between your thighs. When I kiss your skin, I kiss a sky of stars. And each star explodes in my mouth like a sensuous supernova. When I kiss your breasts, I kiss the hills of earth. And these hills become mountains under the touch of my tongue, rising to the moon and stars. My mouth explodes like an alpine meadow in spring with fragrances, pastels, the sizzling heat of bees. When I ease myself into you, I enter grottos, magic springs, holy wells. I thrust up into a tree and your hair is the color of willow and moonlight. Your eyes, the color of night under a new moon. I become that tree. My leaves kiss the sky. Suck up the sun. Lick the moisture from the air. Taste the residue of stars. The evening mist rising from wet grass makes me tremble. I assume the hue of moonlight. And how did the drum get worked into that one? Well, I played around with different rhythms and then I decided that um, I would memorize the poem because you can't do both. Play the <laughs> poem, read the page. So then I memorized it and then I actually spent a few hours trying to work out what sounded best. Did you always know you wanted to drum with it? No, I didn't. I wrote it for somebody, and I read it to them, and um, they liked it. And then years later, I decided, not years later, I'd say a couple of years later, yeah. decided to try it with a drum. I thought it would work. Yeah. And uh, I've done the drum with also other poem, poets, yeah. Walt Whitman. And I remember when you first started with the drum. This is something... You learned as a grown-up. You just I remember you I told me you just decided you wanted to learn how to how to play this, this drum. Right, and I, I decided to learn. I took lessons from an Irish musician, and, uh, and then I just practiced a lot. Uh, William Blake, I do William Blake with it. I do about fifteen minutes of Beowulf playing the drum, um, and so uh, lots of things. Do not go gentle to, to that good night. I do with the drum. Yeah. Um, and a few of my own poems. No, I find it really inspirational that, like, how old were you when you did this? Were you 50 years old, maybe? Something like that. I think 50 yeah. is about right. Yeah. So there you go. A 50 yeah. year old just says, hey, I'm going to learn to play this drum yeah. and uh, learn that manipulation of that. Does a stick of a special name? I don't know. A little uh, they call stick. it, actually, they call it a beater. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that little two headed stick. Yep. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. I thought, just thought that was so cool. You just decided yeah. to do it and you went and did it. You know? Yeah, I just, uh, and the first time we went to the Dodge Fest together, yeah. I was sitting out in, in the uh, parking lot playing it when you and right. the three guys from Albany yeah. and uh, Sean Thomas Doherty walked up. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And I was there playing it. <laughs> yeah.
Let's do another poem then. I'm going to do a nature poem because that was kind of a nature poem. I've been hiking the long trails in Connecticut, the ones that are oh. 20, 30 miles long. Not all in one day. You know, I have to right. do it because however far I hike, I have to hike back. Right. <laughs> so I do five, maybe seven miles at a time. Wow. Um, and I was hiking on the trail in uh, um, Ledyard, Connecticut, near the eastern shore, called the Narragansett Trail. And uh, it was the night of a supermoon. So I thought this would be a good poem to do. What is a supermoon? A supermoon is an extraordinarily bright moon due it's to its closer to the earth than usual. And it doesn't happen often. And the atmospheric conditions are just right. So it turns out to be oh. an extremely large moon when it comes up on the right horizon. Um, uh -huh. It has to do with the atmosphere. Part of it's the atmosphere, part, no. but part of it is that it's closer the to the time, earth. Of the yeah. time of year where you are. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, Supermoon. This was September 2015. I go out into the fullness of just past summer, the light waning early, but crickets, cicadas, coyotes, and owls still ruling the night. Robins, woodpeckers, finches, and flickers have become scarce. Heat still drenches the leaves, bittersweet and ivy, maples and birches, and the ever-defiant oaks. It is a constant battle, is it not? The waning of summer, the arrival of winter, the opening of flowers, fruit, seed, the withdrawal of the loss of leaves for protection against ice and snow. But one thing we know, life will return. And tonight, of all nights, the moon is full, fuller than it has been for years. A supermoon, they call it, a rare celestial event. Tonight, I saw the supermoon rise above a pasture where cows graze, mists rising, the autumn mists that foretell the coming chill of winter. As the moon rose, I stood before an old Baptist church from the 1870s, and when I turned, the church's window had captured the moon, magnified it, and made it oblong. The eye of the moon filled the eye of the church, and God was everywhere, hidden and revealed, like any true God. And all I could do, mere mortal, is stand transfixed, eyeing the miracle before me, and realizing, too, my own miraculousness. Not an abstraction, not an idea, not a generalization, but God inside me, the moon rising, the sun rising, the wondrous glories, soul rising to meet a God full of love and bright in the darkness, like a moon in its fullness, long into the night, cicadas sing, crickets rub their legs, owls call, coyotes howl, and we sing too, the joy of harvest, the preparation for the long dayless winter, the coming of spring, the leaping God everywhere, thrilling our hearts with the promise of another summer, the ripening of another year's fruits. Supermoon. Supermoon. Do you feel like um, how does how does poetry affect your relationship with nature? Uh, mightily, <laughs> because whenever I'm out in nature, I'm always thinking of the possibility of how I can use what I experience in a poem. And a lot of them I write down turn out to be nothing. I, I write them in my notebook. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a poem. Mm -hmm. doesn't materialize, but yeah. some things, like this, virtually wrote itself. While I was standing there, I wrote it. Well, you're putting down the details of what's around you. Yeah, like, exactly. Just basically capturing your experience. Yeah, it's kind of like 
photographing with my mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Kerouac talked about sketching. Yeah, yeah. And that seems like that's that's related. Yeah, and uh, I I've stopped. I used to take pictures a lot um, before mm -hmm. the digital age, <laughs> with right. thirty-five millimeter of of nature scenes in a hike. And people say, well, why don't you just use a digital camera now? I say, because now I just write poems about it. So that's a good practice I, for me. <laughs> yeah, just getting out there. So every time you take a hike, besides the exercise and the just good feeling of it, there's always poetry potential. Always. At least one poem I write, sometimes two or three, yeah. every time I hike. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, recently I discovered my backpack. I was cleaning it out to get a new backpack, I found a whole wad of little poems and little sheets of paper that I had stuffed oh, in there. That's great. So I'm hoping to write a, a chapbook called The Backpack Poems. Oh, that's super. Based on those. It reminds me of the title from Snyder, you know, Left Out in the Rain. But yes, right. <laughs> it's like you're these little guys yeah. you forgot about. Yeah. And who knows what's in there. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, we've been talking with Tom Nicotera, Connecticut poet, about his love of nature, music, performance. Tom, it's been really great to have you on Poetry's Poetry. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to be here. that is truly wonderful and it's that I held in my hand twice once to pack and once to unpack every single book that I own and doing that reminded me of some real gems that I had not looked at or thought about in years one of these gems is a small paperback entitled Psyche the feminine poetic consciousness an anthology of modern American women poets. The editors are Barbara Segnitz and Carol Rainey, and it was published way back in 1973. So it's a bit of a historic document as well as a poetry collection. And it's still available online. I checked. You can get it used if you uh, so desire. So the point of this anthology, I thought I'd take it right from the editors' mouths, as they say in the introduction. We felt it necessary to confront and banish the much maligned image of the lady poet, a mythic creature envisioned as sucking cigars in a mist of chiffon and tastefully masturbating a limited vision. And they say Rothke's harsh criteria there actually describe any poet of second or lesser rate. Certainly the lady poet exists, and she still receives a lot of recognition by appreciators of the adolescent club woman or domestic schools of verse, but we have rejected her. And they go on to say, the dominant idea unifying the poetry of women is that of defining, or more precisely, redefining themselves and their world more realistically. So who's in this collection? Well, there are a lot of the poets that you would expect. 
starting off with good old Emily Dickinson, and there's Marion Moore, Mae Swanson, Levertoff, Carolyn Kaiser, a tremendous excerpt from Pro Femina. If you don't know that work, it's something to look into. Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, Arch Piercy, and as a, a reviewer for Kirkus Review pointed out, well, he wasn't too fond of it. He said it's another predictable anthology of predictable American women poets. And he mentions that, of course, there's the inclusion of the, quote, necessary black poets. Gwendolyn Brooks, Nikki Giovanni, and Marie Evans, whoever she is. That little snide comment there, whoever she is, that, that dismissive thing just got me going. I didn't know who she was, but I just wanted to check. And so uh, I did some deep research, because it came out before Google, you know. So I did some deep research by actually turning to the back of the book so that I could read the author's bio, which apparently a reviewer couldn't manage to do. Makes me wonder if he got past the table of contents. Uh, this was an unsigned review in Kirkus Review of March 1973. Well, at this point, pretty early in her career, Marie Evans, producer, director of weekly television series The Black Experience, writer-in-residence and assistant prof of black literature at Indiana University. And her volume, which is, I think, pretty well known, I Am a Black Woman, received the Indiana University Writers' Conference Award for the most distinguished work of poetry by an Indiana author in 1970, and the Black Academy of Arts and Letters' first annual poetry award. In, in her long career, in fact, she was born in 1923, and the various sources I looked at online, she appears to still be alive in her 90s. So she went on to write more books and to receive more awards. And just because she was dismissed by this twit of a reviewer, I want to read you a bit of one of her poems, and just, just to give her that podium. This is called To Mother and Steve by Marie Emmons. All I wanted was your love. When I roiled down Brewster, blew soft pot clouds on subs, when I lay in nameless rooms, cold sweating, horse in nameless arms crawled through white hell, owning no one, no one, no one, save one purple bruised soul, pawned in exchange for oblivion. All I wanted was your love. Not twice, but constantly I tried to free you. It was all such cold shit then, the last day of the last year of my raw-edged anguish. I was able, wearily at last, to roll. All I wanted was your love. Marie Evans. And the book, Psyche, The Feminine Poetic Consciousness. Edited by Segnitz and Rainey. This is Charlie Rossiter. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. 
If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.